You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. On Worldview this week, there are not a few Irish football fans uh, from North and South and not least in this very office who are watching with alarm the intensification of France's industrial turmoil. We're looking at the dispute and its politics and wonder about the prospects for the 1.5 million foreign fans expected in France from the end of next week. US election has in the last week or so in practice moved on from the primaries. Donald Trump is the official Republican candidate, Hillary Clinton as good as the Democratic candidate. What matters now is the race between the two of them, a race that is narrowing very sharply. And we look at racism in China. In the aftermath, the broadcasting by a detergent company of a TV ad promoting a product that will clean a black man's skin white, an ad that has gone viral and for which the company has since apologised. But what does it say about racial attitudes in China? I'm Patrick Smith, Worldviews, an Irish Times podcast, bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs from journalists and correspondents around the world. I'm joined this week by Lara Marlow, our Paris correspondent, by Fintan O'Toole, and by Clifford Kuhn in, in Beijing. Firstly to France and our correspondent, Lara Marlow. After months of street protests and rolling strikes of petrol queues, with another rail strike due to start, the French government on Tuesday appealed to CGT Union to negotiate uh, on the controversial labour laws which are going through Parliament. What's the main thrust of the labour laws, and are there points of particular worry for the unions? Uh, well, the, the, main, the original idea of the labour law was to make it easier to hire and fire people in France, uh, and that, that has been lost. Um, the, the right says that the Vos government has gutted the original law, and to a certain extent they're, they're right. The only real sticking point left in the labour law is Article Number 2, which gives priority to an agreement that is negotiated within a company to a uh, sectoral agreement between uh, the broader labor union uh, and the, say, you know, farmers or widget makers or whatever. Uh, and the unions hate this because it obviously diminishes their power. And, and this is going to be the focus of all the negotiations, which are picking up speed now. Uh, one, the compromise proposition would give the labor unions a droit de regard, which is, is not really a say in the agreement. It's just a, a, a right to look at, to have their say uh, in agreements made within a company. And, and it, it, it's very vague and um, flu, as the French say. And I, I think that's probably what's going to happen is that the unions will, will maintain some kind of right to give their opinion uh, on agreements within companies. Um, and, and that'll be it. And, you know, it, it looks like the paradox, Patty, is that at the very moment when the strikes are, are on the verge of being at their worst with a, an open-ended railway strike from 7 p.m. tonight, an open-ended metro strike from Thursday, and a, a three-day air traffic control strike on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, at the very moment when it seems to be at the worst, um, there's more optimism now than I've seen in weeks here in Paris that, that this could be coming to an end soon. But the uh, parallel strikes, the, the, the SNCF and the Air France strikes, are about issues concerning those companies, not the labour laws. Isn't that right? Isn't, and, and so uh, absolutely. Uh, what's happened is that all of the, the unions, and in particular the, the SNCF, the railways, the EDF, the electricity uh, nuclear power stations, and the RATP, the, the Paris Transport, those are all uh, state-owned companies. And the law is about private companies. 
So you're right, they're not directly concerned, uh, but they're kind of using it as a pretext for putting pressure on the government uh, for their own negotiations on pay and working conditions. And it has worked. I mean, the government actually against the wishes of the CEO of the SNCF, the, the train company, uh, the government gave them more favorable conditions. Uh, they went over and there were even uh, rumors which were denied by both sides, that, but that the head of the SNCF had threatened to resign because the government actually undercut him by giving so much uh, to the the train drivers and other railway personnel. So that's, they, they, they've been very successful at using uh, the crisis to jockey for better conditions for themselves. And there's been an attempt by the government in the last day or so, I, I gather, to pick off a number of other unions who might be standing in the wings uh, with demands and that there's been little sweetheart deals uh, mm-hmm. uh, around their pet projects. Is that right? They're, they're, well, they're not so much other unions cause they're, they're, as other sectors, I think you'd say. Uh, scientists uh, had done a very uh, virulent petition last week condemning the government for cutting very deeply into the budgets for research. And so uh, François Hollande has just restored that budget. No cuts after all, 134 million euro. Um, the education minister just this morning confirmed that she is giving a billion euro to teachers uh, who will get in the, uh, in the first instance 50 euro a month pay rises, and that's going to rise to 100 euro a month, I think, in a year or two. Uh, and this is just you know, manna from heaven. It's a, it's Christmas every day, as one of my colleagues said. So they they are giving presents to people. The teachers are a very are a powerful union, or several teachers unions. And the fear was that if the teachers joined in the general uh, strike, you know, unrest uh, atmosphere, that that it would. They're trying to keep the movement from expanding and from extending to other sectors. And I think François Hollande is probably also thinking about next year's presidential election because teachers are a group who traditionally have voted socialist. And there's been a lot of dissatisfaction in, in education. And maybe, you know, by giving them all pay, pay rises, maybe they'll vote for him for re-election after all. I wanted to come back to, to the uh, presidentials uh, in a moment. But uh, talk to me about, about about the immediate politics of the crisis. I mean, he doesn't even have the, the majority of Socialist Party behind him, uh, does he? And he had to introduce this in the lower house by executive order. That's right. Uh, Manuel Valls, the Prime Minister, had to use Section 49.3 of the Constitution to pass the Labour law by decree. Uh, that said, it's still the, the draft law is still going around the Senate and the National Assembly be, before becoming finalised in July, so they can still work on the text. Um, no, there's a, there's a lot of uh, disenchantment and anger on the left of the Socialist Party. The, the frondeurs or, or rebels are still very angry about the labor law, and they considered it a, a betrayal. In fact, there were a lot of uh, Socialist Party officers attacked. Uh, so you're right, Patty. The feeling within the social the socialist party is very divided indeed the government is divided for that matter we've had different ministers uh sending very contradictory signals to what the government has been saying to what the prime minister has been saying um but there there is a desire a very strong desire both on the part of the government but also seemingly more and more on the part of the cgt which is the the very hardline communist union to to find uh, a way out of this and do you think that he will have a majority in the upper house when it comes to it? 
Uh, well, he doesn't, to, to vote the Labour law, you mean? Yeah. Uh, he doesn't need, under the 49-3, passing it by decree, he doesn't, unless they filled another vote of no confidence, a motion of censure, and unless it changes from the last time they tried that, uh, when they didn't have, it, it failed um, fairly, by a fairly wide margin, um, no, it, it, it will pass, especially if, I mean, the, the negotiations, the discussions that are going on now should have happened before they took the law to Parliament, uh, but they didn't, it didn't work that way. You've got to have this big theater of weeks of unrest and strikes and demonstrations, and then everybody starts compromising, and then you agree on, on, on the text. Um, but it, it couldn't have reached an agreement without going through this feverish phase of, of um, disruption. We just hope that the disruption will stop uh, in time to save the Euro 2016 um, football championship. Well, I mean, at this stage, is anybody uh, able to give advice to travellers? <laughs> uh, it's a hard one, Patty. I mean, the, the fact is that under Nicolas Sarkozy, uh, they passed a law on what they call minimum service which means that even if all the transport unions go on strike, they still have to guarantee a minimum service. So you don't have the kind of strikes that you had, say, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, where, where the whole country would literally draw to a halt. You might have very, very crowded metro cars. You might have long waits for trains. Um, for example, from tonight, they're saying that only six out of ten TGV high-speed trains will be running, but only one in three intercity trains. So it, it's a gamble, frankly. It, it's a gamble. You're going to come over and risk being stranded. Um, but at the same time, things are improving. For example, um, I heard just uh, an hour or two ago that only 7% of the petrol stations are now shut for lack of fuel. Uh, that had gone up to 20 and even 30% last week. Uh, so that shows you that, that it is getting better in, in some areas. I, I think the worst is to come still in the metro and the air traffic control towards the end of this week. Uh, but, you know, there is there's definitely a will that wasn't there before uh, to compromise and to find a way out. Thanks, Lara. You can get Worldview delivered free of charge to you each week by subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher. The US presidential election has become a riveting contest, not least because it's now pitting against each other the two most unpopular candidates in memory. And in recent days, polling aggregates are showing a remarkable convergence. Trump has even been ahead at one point. Now he's behind. Fintan O'Toole, you're just back from an extended stay in the US. What is your sense of this election? Is it, is it possible that Trump could actually win? Well, I think I'm like, I suppose, most people, which is that I've been profoundly wrong about Trump uh, for a very long time. I mean, you know, if you if you go back to the early uh, weeks of the primaries when, when Trump was insulting John McCain's uh, record as a war hero, you know, I think the vast majority of people watching American politics just felt, you know, this guy has absolutely no chance of getting the Republican nomination or even staying in the race very long. Um, and now he's, he's, he's the candidate. And the current polls are showing that it's pretty much 50-50 between himself and, 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 and Hillary. So he has to be taken seriously and he has to be taken seriously because he's proved himself to be um, an, a profound ignoramus in one, in one sense, but actually not stupid at all. I mean, he's someone who has 
a very good sense of his audience, of his constituency, of who he's talking to and what's on their minds. Um, and he's proved to be incredibly effective. He's changed the rules of the game. And very few politicians over our lifetimes actually managed to do that. They, they, they completely upend the way in which campaigns work, the boundaries of what can and can't be said. Um, and to a large extent, at the moment, at least, the campaign is being fought on Trump's terms. Extraordinary thing, actually. You mentioned John McCain and, and his comments about veterans. There was Trump this weekend at a rally of biker veterans saying that he was a great supporter of veterans and he wanted to see more money and the, he was cheered to the rafters. Yeah. You know, it, it, this is why he's changed the rules in a sense, which is it seems that Trump can say almost anything and nobody seems to be uh, profoundly insulted. Now, that's true only up to a point, right? So, so within the constituency that he's addressing, it seems he's given extraordinary latitude, uh, even on things that we would have thought as American shibboleths, you know, like, like the military or like, like a war hero like, like McCain. McCain's a genuine war hero, you know. Uh, but the question for Trump is, how deeply has he alienated those constituencies which he has alienated? Um, and can he get any of them back? Um, and if you look at states like Florida, for example, which are absolutely crucial to the Republicans. I mean, the, the Democrats can win the presidency without winning Florida. Uh, but the Republicans pretty much, at least so far, need to win Florida if they're going to win, win, win the presidency. Uh, and Florida is a pretty good state for the Republicans because unusually its Hispanic population tends to vote. Republican because of the Cuban-American heritage and all of those, those uh, historical reasons. The evidence from, from Florida at the moment is that the Cuban-Americans will not vote for Trump. You know, so all of the Cuban-American leadership in, in, in the Republican Party in Florida is saying... This is particularly in, in Miami. In particularly in, 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 in Miami, which is going to be crucial. Miami-Dade, Miami yeah. people remember the hanging chads, people remember how, how important that can be. So the question then is, has Trump changed the rules of the game sufficiently that that doesn't matter, that he can lose places like Nevada and Florida and, and, and uh, even Arizona, you know, which is, which is now probably up for grabs, uh, and still win the presidency. And in order to do that, what he has to do is to really consolidate a new electorate for himself, which is he's got to do what Ronald Reagan was able to do, which is to take the Rust Belt states, uh, which are democratic states, are old, white working class, solidly democratic states, uh, who will probably vote down the line for Democrats in the state races and uh, local races. Can he get a sufficient number of those people to vote Trump so that states like Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, that whole Midwest Rust Belt becomes competitive. If he can do that, then we're into a scenario in which Trump can win the presidency. You know, it, it's, it's not impossible. It's it's a very curious paradox that Trump is the candidate of the establishment party, the ultimate establishment party, and yet he's an, ex an expression of the failure of that establishment. He's an outsider. He's an anti-politics uh, candidate. And what what is his candidacy saying about the state of politics in America? I think uh, he's saying a couple of things. I mean, one is you know, and this is where Trump is sort of intuitively highly intelligent. So Trump spotted something that the establishment didn't spot, which was that. There was a huge gap between what the Republican Party said, what the emotions that it played off and that it stirred up, which were emotions of resentment against the establishment. So for the last 15 years, the Republican Party has been playing this card of being the outsiders, the anti-Washington, anti-government, uh, fed up with them, whoever them might be. Uh, 
while then it, seeming that it could it could stir all this sort of stuff and uh, up and then use it to the advantage of the ultimate establishments essentially for the the top one percent of the one percent you know with 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 tax cuts with with deregulation with all of the rest of it and Trump spotted the gap that's there between the rhetoric that the Republican Party has been using and the reality of the way it, in which it has actually governed. Uh, and he has been reckless enough and smart enough and has, has had nothing to lose. And he's gone right for that gap. And he has absolutely destroyed the Republican base. So he, you know, what, what Trump realizes is that actually most of the people who've been voting for the Republicans uh, actually don't want tax cuts for billionaires, uh, actually are not particularly interested in, in further dereg deregulation for banks. Um, they're interested in the fact that they've lost jobs, that their, their, their middle-class lifestyles are, are, are being winnowed away. I mean, you, you spent a long time in the States during all of that period, but you could, you know, you could visibly see it. You, know, you, you can see in the States, if you spend any time there, that the idea of the American comfortable middle-class lifestyle is, is, is under really profound assault. And Trump has has realized that and he's gone for it and he's he's thrown in a kind of crude incendiary rhetoric on top of it. But it's 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 really striking a chord. And that that's certainly true of the Republican base and how he won the Republican base back from the leadership of of, of conventional Republican uh, uh, the conventional party. But the, the conventional wisdom, uh, which has right, been blown out of the water by this election, but the conventional wisdom says now he's got to rebrand himself for the general election. Is there any sign that he's going to rebrand himself? And, and, and if we look at, for example, even his party organisation, it doesn't seem to be an organisation fit to run a presidential uh, campaign. It seems to be very much a, a one-man band. Is, is, is Trump just going to go trundling on in the same vein? My instinct is that he is. You know, everybody around him is telling him you've got to be to be presidential now. You know, and of course he famously said, "I can act presidential." Why was he president? You know, he sees the presidency as just another kind of performance. You know, he's a he's a showman. He's a carnival barker. Um, but I I think his instinct is actually right. I think he realizes that if if Donald Trump suddenly tries to be Mr. Respectable, boring presidential candidate. Uh, you know, why vote for him at all? You know, he 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 loses a huge part of his appeal. He, you know, what Trump has to do... But he doesn't he, lose that Republican base. They've he, nowhere else to go. They've nowhere else to go, but but they will stick with him. But the key thing is, you know, if Trump's going to win the presidency, what does he have to do? Essentially, he has to get people who are currently voting for Bernie Sanders, you know, which are, are sort of uh, resent, resentful left-wing voters who are also fed up with neoliberalism, who are fed up mm. with the, the inequalities... Uh, and in order to do that, he has to keep going a sense of anti-establishment resentment. It's the only chance he has. He cannot win if he simply gets the Republican base. Because remember, the Republican base in presidential elections, uh, you know, other than um, George Bush's second election, you know, the Democrats have been winning the majority of the popular votes, you know, going, going right, right back. Uh, there's an inbuilt democratic majority. So for Trump to do it, he's got to get the independents, he's got to get those Democrats, he's got to get the young people who are voting for, for Sanders. Ultimately, I don't think he can do it because I think there are issues that are important to Sanders voters on which Trump hasn't a clue. Climate change, for example. If you look at the, the resentful 
Sanders voters who are really angry at Hillary Clinton and don't want to vote for Hillary Clinton, they care a lot about climate change. They're young, highly educated. They're of that generation for whom this is a big issue. They care a lot about so-called social issues. You know, they, they care about um, gay rights. They care about transgender rights. They care about all of that. They care about abortion rights, on which Trump has been less extreme than, than his party, but nevertheless, he's, he's pretty much towed the line on those kind of things. So it's going to be incredibly difficult for Trump, I think, to reach those Sanders voters. Well, certainly the younger uh, college students and yeah. the like, who yeah. I, I find it very difficult to think. You know, there's there's noises in the Sanders camp saying, oh, we're not going to vote for, for Hillary Clinton. Uh, you know, we, she's she's sold out completely. But one suspects that that is more noise than, than fact. Yeah. There is also the, the strong element of the working class Rust Belt vote, yeah. which Sanders has tapped into successfully. Which I, I would agree with you is, is much more possible for 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 uh, Trump, absolutely, uh, absolutely. To, to, yeah. to pick up. Yeah, I I am very in, interested by the, the the fact that he's burnt enough bridges yeah. as, on on his way in the primaries, and uh, there are there are toxic uh, constituencies as far as uh, he he's concerned. That the the blacks, the women, Hispanics, all of them find it very difficult. The Hispanics you were talking about, Florida, where. Uh, his treatment of Rubio in the in the uh, uh, primaries has alienated an entire uh, community in 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 Miami, and it's very difficult yeah. to see them uh, wandering back to 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 him. Is there any way he can reverse it? For for example, among women. Well, um, he can't reverse it among women by suddenly coming out and saying I'm a I'm a feminist, and you know what what he'll do is what he has been doing, of course, which is which is counterattack. Um, and you know his counterattacking, crude and nasty as it is, is is quite effective. You know, so the first time that Hillary Clinton, this was about four months ago, the first time Hillary Clinton called him a sexist, he immediately came out and said, you know, you are the greatest enabler of the greatest abuser that's ever been in the White, in the White House. You know, he uses this sort of supercharged, horrible rhetoric, mm. which of course alienates a lot of women. But the women that it alienates are probably women who are going to vote for Hillary Clinton anyway. What he's aiming at is to sort of neutralize those kinds of issues by saying she's as bad as I am. And, you know, to be fair, Hillary is a, an inviting target for, for some of these issues. So if people think that, tr that Trump isn't trustworthy, you know, Hil Hillary's ratings in terms of trustworthiness are terrible. If they think that Trump is, a, is, is an appalling sexist, Bill Clinton is not exactly a role model for, for, for the way in which we would, we would want men to be behaving in, in the Oval, Oval Office in terms of women. So women I think that's what Trump will do. Are women prepared to blame... Hillary for Bill's indiscretion? Well, the, the evidence, the polling evidence shows that uh, the majority of women are absolutely not. And in fact, if anything, it sort of plays well for Hillary. They, they sympathise with her because she's being attacked. And of course, we know this historically, if you go back to when Hillary was, was, was first lady, you know, her, her um, uh, poll ratings went up every time uh, there was another indiscretion, you know. So, she stood uh, by Bill but, but, but that, you see, for, for Trump, it, it, those women are probably lost. And, you, you know, we know what Hillary's going to do because, in fact, uh, Trump's Republican opponents ran the most brilliant ads against him, which, you know, you, you, you could see, you can still see them online, where just taking Trump's voice, speaking some of the lines that he's spoken historically about women, being uh, spoken or, or moused by ordinary women on, on camera. And it's incredibly effective. So you just have these ordinary women saying these hateful things about women in Trump's voice. And those kind of ads, you know, you can see Hillary's going to run those and run them and run them and run them. Uh, all the material is there. So there's no way back for Trump in relation to that sort of mainstream of women uh, who, who will be alienated by him. But what he'll try to do is he'll try to, in the areas where he thinks he can win, in those Rust Belt states, he will 
he will try to say, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're male or female, you've lost your job. The company that you used to work for has gone to Mexico or has gone to China. I'm the person who's going to bring that back. You might not like me. You might think I'm a bit of an old-fashioned chauvinist, <laughs> which would be the other statements of the year. But what really matters to you is your job, is your economy, is your family. That's the pitch you'll be making, and it will work with some women. I Just touching finally on, on, on uh, the other side of the, the election, but Trump has this extraordinarily effective method of sucking all the publicity of the campaign and, and all the attention towards him. But there's still, technically speaking, a, a contest on the, on the Democratic side. And I mentioned Bernie Sanders' supporters saying that they will not uh, claim that they will not back Clinton. Uh, his relationship with the, the Democratic Party leadership is extremely unpleasant and, and poor at the moment. Uh, how real is this? Do you think it's going to survive the, the primaries and the, and the convention? Um, I think a lot depends on Hillary. And, and Hillary has proved to be very, very bad at uh, doing what she needs to do now, which is to really reach out to people who don't like her. You know, she's, she's very much... I suppose for historical reasons and everything she's been through, she's very much someone who circles the wagon, who listens to the people who, who, who tell her what she wants to hear. Uh, and, you know, her mentality is very much a defensive insider mentality. And, uh, you know, one hopes that she realises she has a huge job to do to reach out to people who really don't like her and really don't trust her and really see her as someone who represents the establishment in, in American politics. I mean... She sees herself as a radical and a progressive and someone who's there to shake things up. That's not the way she's seen by the majority of Americans and particularly by the people who are, who are, who are voting for Sanders. I think it can be done. I think if she's smart, if she's humble, if she really does reach out, particularly if she gets a vice presidential candidate who is on the left. This is going to be absolutely crucial to her. The ideal candidate for her, I think, in many ways, would be somebody like Elizabeth Warren. Uh, if she can get somebody who has those kinds of credentials... Uh, to really just concentrate during the campaign on on the Sanders voters, um, then she will win the election. Uh, but she's capable of screwing it up. And who's your money on? I think you still would have to put your money on Hillary. Um, and one of the reasons I would I would do this is, is demographics just you know are so favourable towards Hillary. Um, the other reason is there's so much about Trump that people haven't processed yet. So. Hillary's great advantage is that pretty much all the horrible things about her are known, you know, unless there's something extraordinary out there. But she's been the, one of the most examined personalities in, in public life, you know, for, for, for 20 odd years now. Whereas Trump, uh, I, I had a conversation uh, last week uh, in, in New York with a New York property lawyer, right? So someone who'd be from Trump's world, you know. And uh, this guy's a rich, cynical property lawyer, you know, and, and he said, uh, you know, I would never vote for Trump. I would never work for Trump. And I said, why not? He says, because he doesn't pay his bills. He's a cheat. <laughs> and you talk to anybody in the business world uh, who has ever dealt with Trump, and the words that come out are crook, cheat, you know. And there's, a, I, I heard somebody who's a, a, in opposition analysis for the Democrats uh, use the analogy. They said, being an opposition analyst for uh, uh, for Hillary against Trump is like being a mosquito in a nudist colony. You know, there is so much dirt on Trump. There's so much of a sense that this man is just a, a crook. You know, he, he's 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 walked away from debt so often. He's left so many people high and dry. Trump University, which came up a bit in the primaries, that's going to be playing again and again and again. All these ordinary people who were ripped off by Trump. Mm. So, his stance as the champion of the little person, I think, uh, is going to wear thinner and thinner as that spotlight comes more and more on him. Thank you very much, Vincent. 
You're listening to the Irish Times. And so to China. Clifford Coonan, last week a detergent company broadcast an ad of breathtaking insensitivity, the like of which it has to be said could not be seen in any Western country uh, since the ending of the black and white minstrel shows on TV and similarly racially charged uh, humour. Uh, probably the 1970s. The ad went viral and then, and then was pulled. Can, can you describe the ad? Well, the ad, um, it is something that might be familiar to viewers from the 1970s in that, um, um, as you say, it's, it's the kind of um, insensitivity that you just don't get in Western advertising anymore. But in the ad, a black man is washed, um, in inverted commas, by the, the Chaobi detergent, um, which is put into his mouth by a young Chinese woman who, with whom he's flirting. And then she pushes him into the washing machine, um, sits on the lid, and then he comes out um, as a pale-skinned uh, Chinese man who's obviously a much more suitable candidate. Now, the, the company has apologised since, and uh, has there been, A, much mainstream commentary on this? And there is some sensitivity to Western criticism of the ad. There is. I mean, in some ways, the attitude in, in China to this is is a little bit like, I mean, we would be familiar with this in Ireland in the 80s, where people were saying, you know, when, when people would complain about racism or sexism. I mean, the ad is also wildly sexist, which few enough people have actually picked up on, but it's the kind of thing you don't get away with in, in uh, detergent commercials anymore either in terms of the woman as a, um, you know, the homemaker that way. But anyway, um, the, the thing that people have really picked up on is um, that, you know, maybe you're taking this too seriously and you're over-interpreting it. And, um, and that's kind of been the reaction and almost as if the, the, the Western media reaction as it's been presented has been um, reading too much into it. But is it completely untypical? Or, I mean, is there other racially insensitive material also appearing routinely on TV? There, I mean, it comes up every so often. I mean, there was a toothpaste which was very popular called Darkie, which um, had basically kind of like a black and white minstrel figure. Um, and when there was a, a, um, complaints about this in the 80s and, and 90s, uh, they changed the name to Darley, um, changing the K to an L. Um, but that's still widely sold. Uh, sorry, widely sold, and uh, still contains the um, still has the picture of the sort of black and white minstrel figure. So in some ways, it's still very mainstream. Um, there aren't a lot of foreigners in China in that sense. Certainly not a lot of people of say African descent. Um, there are in Guangzhou in the south, but people wouldn't be that familiar with with um, with say African culture or African American culture. Um, so, um, in some ways people are kind of wondering what the problem is, but on the other hand, I think people have learned quite a lot from this. You know, I mean, you know, a lot of people in the comments that you see on the various social media are reading and saying, oh, okay, well, you know, if someone is feeling offended by this, clearly, you know, Chinese people don't necessarily like to offend. So it's, uh, it's, um, it certainly seems to have struck a chord in some, in some places. But there is a sense in which the objections and the, the complaints, the protests have come largely from uh, outside China, not from the Chinese themselves. I think that's probably true. But um, there have been a number of people um, from uh, Chinese people, particularly, um, I mean, it's hard to tell from the comments online, but certainly in the cities, um, people are, are um, saying this is, this is making China look bad. You know, I mean, this kind of, this kind of stuff just doesn't, you know, excuse excuse the pun, doesn't wash anymore. And um, so there has been a, a kind of a backlash within the cities. But I think generally it's it's still slow to change in terms of attitudes to, to how, how these kind of ads are viewed. Public attitudes to foreigners in China have always been 
distinctly ambivalent, uh, and particularly to Africans. Uh, it, it, the degree of social mixing with African students and the like, is that still uh, as rare as it was? Um, it is. I mean, there was a certain amount in in the hardcore leftist days, there was a certain amount of um, solidarity with the, the um, left-wing communist African nations, and a lot of the students would have come during that time. But um, there's still, a, 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 I think, a suspicion of, of black culture and, and black people in China because uh, uh, of the unfamiliarity. I mean, I think it's similar in, in Russia as well. And um, and I think it's one of these things that you, you just hope that eventually familiarity will, will overcome. But that familiarity needs to be accompanied with some kind of official response. And there hasn't been an official response to this. I mean, even the apology to this ad the first one was was basically saying that the me, the Western media needs to get over itself, and it was only when clearly um, a PR company um, realizing the potential disaster of this did the company come out with an apology. But it took nearly four or five days of of um, furore before they actually came out and said sorry properly. So um, I think um, I think that's possibly the next step is just is just um, attitudes changing on a more fundamental level. Thank you very much, Clifford. Thanks to Lara Marlowe, Fintan O'Toole and Clifford Coonan, to our producer, Declan Conlon, and on sound, Rob O'Sullivan. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to get Worldview delivered to you free of charge each week.